2: Or even if they don't. Today is August the 8th, 2014. This is episode 1404 of the Survival Podcast and it's Friday, Friday, Friday. That's right, it's time for your calls to the THINK line 866-65-THINK, 866-65-THINK. For those of you that are using Skype, so you don't have letters on your dial pad or whatever reason you don't, that number is 866-658-4465. Call that number, leave me a message, and maybe you'll be on next week's show or the following week. If you don't hear yourself within two weeks, you probably got kicked out simply due to volume. I don't have many bad calls anymore. I think everybody's gotten on board with it just to remind people, especially new callers, how to make a call. If you're using a cell phone, look at it. If you have one bar, don't make your call now. Wait till you have a couple bars on it because there will be nobody to tell you that you sound like this. Hello, Jack. And long-term foods, because I get a few calls like that. And there's no one to tell you that you sound like that, so you won't know. Next, don't run a chainsaw right on the back of a motorcycle. Use a weed eater stand next to a jet airplane while you make your call. I won't be able to hear you, and I won't use your call. And last but certainly not least, the most important thing, when you call, make your point or ask your question in one or two sentences immediately, then give me any details, and then if you want to say something nice about the show, say it at that point. If you do that, your call will go so much more smoothly, I'll be very clear on what you're asking me, and you'll be more likely to get through the screening process. With that, I am ready to get into at least the housekeeping section of today's show, and the uh, first thing we always do is take care of those sponsors. You know, how do I not make the show overly commercial? I put the sponsor spots right up here in the beginning, give the sponsors their due, and then we go commercial free for the rest of the show. So I know some of you skip, but don't. There's a reason not to skip today. Don't skip the intro segment. There's going to be something in here a lot of you are going to want to hear about, and I'm not going to tell you until, well, later. Right now, sponsor of the day number one, knifekits.com. Hey, how about you improve your skill sets? Still time to do it this year. Get it done before year's end. Learn to make a knife. There's so many inexpensive kits over at Knife Kits. Every configuration, shape, form you can think of. Don't know what you're doing? Don't worry. Pick the phone up, call them, tell them, hey, look, I want to build a knife, and I'm not sure what book to get to go with this. I don't know what I'm doing. They'll help you. They'll tell you what to buy. They'll tell you what handle material is going to be easiest to work with, Whatever you want. Or just get on the website and start checking it out. There's so much you can do with making your own knives. There's no reason not to make a knife or two. I mean, you'll spend a few bucks. Will you have like the awesome, incredible hand-forged steel knife when you start out with a basic kit? No, but you'll learn the skills. And if you want to get to that point, it's a great starting point. What a great project to do with your kids, dads. Come on, give it a shot. KnifeKits.com. I'll tell you what, when we vet our sponsors, we go everywhere. When we brought Knife Kits on, we went to all the blade forms and knife forms. No one had a negative thing to say. And I can tell you they've been a sponsor now over four years. I don't have one complaint, not one. That says something in a day and age like today. Family-owned and operated, great company in the Carolinas, KnifeKits.com. Next up today, HarvestEating.com. Chef Keith Snows, awesome, man. You're going to hear from him today. One of the expert counsel questions came in this week. Which for Chef Keith. He's done a great job, as always, with answering that question. He's an amazing guy. He's got great spices, seasonings, a great video, uh, videos available on YouTube, a great podcast. Just all-around amazing guy that teaches you to cook seasonally and locally. And uh, we talk a lot about growing our own food. Well, what do you do with it all? Go see Keith. He'll show you what to do with it. Uh, when it comes down to, to cooking, uses spice mixes. I do. They are amazing. Uh, check him out today. He's at harvesteating.com. And again, you'll hear from Keith today as with an expert counsel call. Next up, consider joining the MSB. Remember how I said don't skip the intro segment? Here's why. I'm going to run a sale for a week. I'm not going to post about it on the blog at all. I'm not going to put it on Facebook at all. I'm just going to mention it on the show The discount code is AUGUSTHEAT, one word, all lowercase, AUGUSTHEAT. What's the heat? What's the discount? 20% on any membership term, and it applies to recurring. So if you join this year, you get 20% off an annual membership, and then next year when you renew, as long as you stay on auto-renew, you get the discount again and again and again. Existing account holders I can't do it I can't do it it's technologically a problem I would do it for you if I could I'd love to let you convert during the sale and win your long-term loyalty I run sales time to time so I can't do it if your account has expired though and you can log in and and add a new subscription you can use it if you are a new person who to the show or new you know been thinking about joining this is a great sale it's not the biggest discount I've ever done, but I don't do applies to recurring very often. I usually do your first year, 20%. It applies to recurring, and you can do it with a monthly membership that's 5 bucks a month, or you can do it with an annual membership that's $50 a month. No matter what membership term you take, quarterly, uh, twice a year, once a year, 20% off any membership term. Those of you whose membership has expired, there's a unique opportunity for you Pay attention when you go to do your renewal and look at all the options. That's all I'm going to say about that. I may send an email to all expired members in the system letting them know about this, but this will not be on the blog. It will not be on the website. If you are military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty or prior service, and also first responders like EMTs, paramedics, and firefighters, I'm going to tell you that the discount code, I, the discount I give you guys is actually a better deal than this and continue to email me with service discount in the subject line and tell me about your service, and I will send you that discount code before or not after you join. It's not a lot better than this, but it's better than this. All right, with that, let us get into the year that was the episode. And the year was 1404, because that's the episode that we're on today. We have St. Elizabeth's Flood, the last emperor. In India, say hello and say goodbye. I am going to read to you St. Elizabeth's Flood. You can read the other two on the history page at Tspwiki.com for the year 1404. These are put together by the awesome Alex Shrugged. Another storm surge has caused several settlements in the Netherlands to submerge below the waves, never to be seen again. Back in twelve eighty seven, the flood waters from a different storm breached the dikes and created a shallow bay out of an inland sea. It was the sixth largest flood in world history, and it took place around St. Lucia's Day. St. Elizabeth's Day flood is not as big, but still catastrophic. The Count of Flanders, John the Fearless, well, these guys all give themselves names, man, gives the order to link all existing dikes to provide more protection from floods, and as a consequence, the shoreline of Belgium will straighten into its modern-day configuration. That's kind of cool. So if you look at Belgium's shoreline... In 1403, it didn't look like that. And it never looked like it does today from that point backward. But in 1404, and as this project was completed, it became what you see today on the map. It's been that way ever since. Man changed the shoreline. My take by Alex Shrug. The Netherlands inland sea created by flooding is called the Brackman in modern day. It is much smaller than it once was in the Middle Ages due to better flood control measures. It used to be called the Zuberzee, which means South Sea, and now you know why they call the North Sea North. It is this flooding of the South Sea that caused shipping and financial institutions to move to Amsterdam in the 1290s and 1300s. The grant of a tax-free export from Amsterdam over the council lands also helped businesses flourish in Amsterdam, thus turning Amsterdam into a financial powerhouse in the 1600s, willing to sink money into a colony called New Amsterdam, Known in modern day as New York City. And now you know how all of that happened. My take, can't help but say it, I'm sorry. Do you think if this flood happened today, you'd hear, it's climate change and global warming. How much CO2 was man releasing in 1404? And was the climate getting warmer or colder at the beginning of the 1400s? Oh, that's right, we were headed... Full-on, at this point, into the Little Ice Age. Just thought I'd point it out. Anyway, with that, let's uh, go ahead and take your first call. Actually, you know what I want to mention real quick? Yesterday I put out a post. Mark Shepard has this awesome initiative. I mentioned it one other time on the air. I'd really like you to consider backing it. And... Consider the show started as I talk about this, like we're, we're out of the intro segment, because I think there's a, a big lesson here in sustainable agriculture, and a lot of you guys tune in for stuff like that, permaculture, building businesses, building economies, building markets. So what Mark's initiative is, is to develop a craft cider industry at his new forest farm. He's got labels already, he's already producing cider, but to full-on go, full tilt, and be able to produce and sell an alcoholic beverage is complicated, right? It takes some money. So he's trying to raise 20000 bucks, And he's doing this with cider apples. Now, cider apples are all the apples that don't end up at, you know, either Walmart or Albertsons or Kroger or at Whole Foods or Sprouts if they're organic. Cider apples are the little hard apples, the ones with imperfections in them. They're the kind of apples, frankly, that you can grow from seed. And we talk often about all the problems with modern agriculture. I, I want you to think about what it would mean if every big farm in America so you know what, we're not going to go all permaculture. And We'll talk more about that kind of thinking in the future and how we can still make progress. Uh, I mean, in today's show, we'll talk about that from a call that we got. But anyway, what if all we did was say every 40-acre block of field will plant a square tree line around that 40-acre block I don't remember the number, but it was in Mark's book, Restoration Agriculture, and it was like some ungodly number of billions of pounds of food that could be produced from those tree lines. How do you get farmers to plant stuff? I mean, it's a dead serious question. How do you get a farmer to plant something? You make it profitable. Right now, Reuters had a report out just a couple weeks ago. That there's a shortage of the kind of apples you make cider from in America, and it's hurting the craft cider industry, which is booming. It grew 66% over one year. Think about the question, how do you make farmers plant something? Make it profitable. Now, how much stabilization could be done to our landscapes if we just planted trees in squares every 40 acre block in, in Throughout the grain country, you can still drive your big combines up and down the fields. 40 acres is big, guys. It's huge. And we can produce tons of additional food. Well, there's a cost of planting. You can plant these apples with seed, it drastically lowers the cost. Drastically lowers the cost. Now, so much the better if we could plant this kind of chestnut, hazel, apple, plum thing, but we gotta get started somewhere. We gotta get a few farmers to say, hey, you know what? That's worth doing. You help build an industry like this, it's a rising tide that floats all boats in the sustainable agriculture industry. So uh, I think he's raised about 5000 He's about 25% of the way to his goal. You can participate for a buck. You can do a $1 donation if you want on Indiegogo. Just go to com. You'll see my whole post on this. And uh, think about this. As, as we... You know, we talk about all these different issues today. There's all kinds of things out there that people are worried about. I get emails all the time. Some guy on TV said blah, 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 and I'm so upset. Okay, does this guy have any authority? No. Okay. So he's running his mouth, and no one gives a shit except the people that put him on the air to piss you off. All right. So you're now focusing your energy, your time, and your sweat, and your blood and tears on this idiot who said something stupid and... You've been drugged out of your circle of influence into your circle of concern by someone who actually had no power until you gave your power to him. Okay, And then there's things like this. Hey, put a couple bucks in, get some kind of a cool reward out of it, and I can help a business person who's already done a tremendous amount for permaculture and sustainable agriculture do a little bit more and help establish an industry. Guys, I think that's worth doing. And I think that's within our, our our circle of influence. And that's what I try to focus on with you guys all the time. This is why I talk about individual sustainability, building your own food supplies, doing your own preparedness, managing your own money, finding your own businesses, being a true human being, taking care of your family, taking care of your community. Instead of gloom and doom and, all oh, the New World Order is going to get you and all this other conspiracy crap, you tune into the Survival Podcast and you get a remarkably positive message tempered with the reality of our current economic state, the current global state, and everything that's wrong and everything that's going wrong, and yes, the tyranny of government. But what do we focus on? What you can do. Try to always remember that. I'm kind of off March thing now. It's not a sales pitch for him. Now I'm on... Please remember that in everything you hear on TSP. Even when you disagree with me, that's fine. You are welcome to disagree with me. I don't really care if you disagree with me. I, in fact, I hope you do from time to time, or I'm not doing anything valid. If I'm not making you angry once in a while, if I'm not upsetting you once in a while, if I'm not challenging you, then I'm just telling you what you want to hear. I don't want to tell you what you want to hear. I want to tell you the truth as I understand it, and I want you to take that, and I want you to build on it, and I want you to build the truth in your own life. You don't have to agree with me, but you do have to build your own life. And you do have to learn this valuable lesson today if you've not learned it before. If it doesn't affect you, don't let it affect you. If someone says something stupid, but it doesn't really matter, don't pay attention to it. If someone's an idiot, but that idiot has no authority, don't give them power by resisting them. Fight when the person that's bringing bringing tyranny or oppression or stupidity actually affects other people in your country and yourself. And when there is something that can be done about it. My wife said to me yesterday, what do we do about the border? And I said, well, until people actually give a shit about closing the border, we don't do anything. Because we're not going to do it. It's not going to happen. It's all bullshit. All they're doing is getting you upset. It's all theatrics for the coming election. They're using these, these, these young people that are coming across the border. They're not children. They're teenagers. The majority of them are male. Many of them are going to swell the ranks of the gangs. But in the end, it's not that this one doesn't affect you. It's, there's not shit you can do about it. You can put whoever you want in office. They're not going to fix it. You can give the whole thing over to the Republicans in 2016. They're not going to fix it. Stop paying attention to it. All it does is make you angry. Pay attention to what you can do with your life. Does that mean? Oh well, what if we do that? Then, then, then the whole thing will fall apart. No, the whole thing will be exactly the way that it is now. It's not going to change because you don't put your energy there. Your your energy going there now is not changing it, is it? Do you think you're convincing anybody? Huh? Do you? You're not. The people that think oh they're all little babies that need to be coddled and taken care of and spend lots of money on are going to continue to believe that. And the people that are like they're all they're all terrible and they should all be shot and sent home. Well, they're going to continue to think that. And the people in the middle that say, hey, look, this problem is a problem we created. We need to fix this problem by enforcing existing laws. And we need to do this sane and rationally. But the first thing we need to do is stop the influx. Those people are 10% of the people. No one's listening to them. No one gives a shit about them. They're probably you. You know what? Go outside and put a garden in. Go down the street and help a young person learn a new skill. Go to your church and tell them about permaculture and put food in on on that giant green, useless freaking grass that they're spending your money on that you're tithing to water. And feed the flock and feed the community. Start a business. Build something of your own. Quit screwing around with CNN and Fox News and all this other crap that exists for one purpose. Actually, two. To distract you. Actually, three, distract you, anger you, and disempower you. That's exactly the entire media apparatus is built to do today. Distract you from what's really important, anger you so you can't focus on what's important, and take your power away from you with those things. It's up to you. We can focus on the things we can actually do. That's why when somebody tries to like rip out a lady's farm, rip out a lady's front yard guard, something like that, and I look at it and go, I think we can win this fight, then we pick that battle. We pick the battles that we think we can win. And when we know that's not going to happen, then we focus on the things that we can do. Anyway, let's take your first call today.
1: Hi, Jack. This is Ben from California. And I've got a question about feeding my dog table scraps. Should I or should I not feed my dog table scraps? Here's the details. Every once in a while we have leftover food. I add it to my dog's bowl, give her extra food. Now, not too long ago she got worms and my wife's convinced it's from the table food. I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Should I give her table food, should I not? Could it have caused the worms? Thanks, bye.
2: Um, No, your dog did not get worms because it ate food from your table Unless you, too, have worms. Got it? If there's worms in the food that come off your table, that means you're eating food with worms in it. See how simple that is? Hey, here's my thought. To you ever give people food to a dog? R- really? What are you eating, then? Now, if your scraps are Twinkies and Ho-Hos and Ding Dongs, you, you shouldn't be eating it, and you probably shouldn't give it to your dog. Are you eating healthy? If you're living a primarily paleo lifestyle, that means the food you're eating is probably better suited to your dog's nutritional requirements than the food that you get from the store for your dog, the quote-unquote dog food. Um, this crap that dogs can't be fed table scraps is just nonsense. It's complete nonsense, and I'll tell you why. Dogs can eat stuff that will kill you. Remember Pink Slime? Pink Slime is where you take all of this nasty leftover crap from a beef carcass, the stuff that's come into contact with the intestines and all, and has E. coli infestations and what have you, and you put it in a centrifuge and you spin the meat that's left, the little scraps of meat out of it, and then you you blast it with chemicals and ammonia. And you you blast it with ammonia to kill the E. coli. And then you mix it into hamburger meat and call it hamburger. Do you know what they used to do with that before they made pink slime out of it? It was all just ground up and made into dog food. And you know what they did to it to make it safe for dogs to eat? Largely nothing. Because a dog can eat that shit and you can't. A dog can eat things that will make you sick and not get sick. A dog can eat things and be healthy that if you ate it with your current digestive system would kill you. Now, does that mean that every single thing that comes off your table is good to feed to your dog? A leftover pie crust is probably not good to give to your dog. I'd rather give that to a chicken. Um, Bones pose a risk. They're not anywhere near as dangerous as people make them out to be, but specifically when a bone is cooked like grilled or baked or roasted, bones tend to crystallize, and if you watch a bone when it gets broken, when it's been cooked that way, it breaks in shards, and no creature should eat something that breaks in shards. However, you look at the way bone breaks when it's crunched up by a dog, when it's either raw or it's been made into a bone stock, where the bone actually gets soft, dogs can have that. You might want to limit how much they get. Um, You have to watch and see, does this create, you know, unnatural bowel movements or any kind of ingestion or regurgitation and if it does either don't give them that again or back off the quantity they get at any one time but if you have some leftover pieces of uh, you know meat or carrot or peas or anything like that and your dog will eat it and you give it to them you've probably improved their nutrition not harmed it now again if you're eating a big giant plate of spaghetti You've eaten all the meat, and you give your dog a giant, huge carbohydrate load of long noodles, and by the way, the dog is not really equipped with its teeth to cut those noodles into small pieces, and lots of long, stringy noodles go down your dog's throat. This can cause all kinds of problems. So you have to think about what you're feeding your dog. And generally, any vegetable or meat waste product is fine to give to your dog, and dogs are not supposed to eat large amounts of carbohydrates. So breads and things like that shouldn't be given. Not because it's people food, because it's not good dog food. And if you don't agree with me, dogs are canines. Canines come from the, the wilds. They did not get, you know, the dog did not show up one day as a dog. It was domesticated out of the wild. We look at the wild and what do we have in the wild? We have African wild dogs. In um, Australia, we have dingoes. In the United States, we have wolves and coyotes. We have, you know, European wolves and Asian wolves. We have, you know, these canines from all over the world. Tell me a single wild canine that has a diet that's anyway, in any shape or form, high in carbohydrates. They pretty much eat none. About the only carbohydrate a dog gets is when it kills something that still has carbohydrate inside it because it's an herbivore, like, let's say, a mouse or a rat or a deer, and it eats the insides of the animal. That's about the only way it gets any real carbohydrate. And then it's probably eating green matter, more vegetative than starch-like. Because there's very few animals that they're going to prey on. They're eating large amounts of starches, other than some rats and things like that, obviously. But (laughs) wild creatures tend to never have high-carbohydrate starch diets, at least not prey creatures that, that dogs are capable of bringing down. It's either fibrous, roughage, vegetative matter... You know, or it's small amounts of seeds and nuts and things like that, which are still balanced with proteins. If you look at things like pack rats, yeah, they eat a lot of seeds, but they also eat a lot of fruit and small insects and lots of protein. So a dog is just not made to eat bread, to be blunt. They're not made to eat rice. They're not made to eat things like that. And you can have some stomach upset problems with large amounts of things that clump in a dog's stomach. But overall, I give my dogs table scraps, and they're quite happy about it. Uh, when we have some, it's just in the refrigerator to the point where it's just not quite, it's not bad. It doesn't stink, but you're like, it's just not really fresh anymore. I don't really want to eat that, and it's meat-based. Into the dog bowl it goes. Small amounts of cheese and stuff like that are okay, but dairy is not something that a dog would, would typically eat either. Uh, they like it. No alliums. Alliums are toxic to canines. No onions. No garlic, no leeks, no alliums for dogs. I mean, other things dogs should eat are like citrus, but they're probably not going to eat it, right? They're just not going to eat it, so you don't have to worry about it. Um, some vets will say, you know, give your dog a natural snack. Give him a carrot. And I found about 20% of dogs will eat carrots. And the other 80% are like, I'm not going to eat that. And we're, pray tell, in the wilderness, would a dog find a carrot? Dogs eat meat and bone and sinew and guts. And blood. So, if the thing you're eating used to have a face, it's definitely good dog food. Let's take another question.
1: Jack, this is a comment regarding episode 1399 about rabbits versus quails. Finished up with the, the, you don't have experience to call in? Uh, I would say that I mean, I've been doing both for about a year. Like anything that's new to her, for the initial person that get into it, like I did, that had no experience. with one of them. I would say rabbits are probably easier in that there's less involved. With quail, they are easier to butcher. They do take up less square footage, uh, and they are prolific layers, but if you don't have an incubator or a brooder of some sort, you have to get that. I was fortunate enough, I ran into a gentleman who was getting out of the quail business for raising dogs, and I bought two incubators, a commercial brooder all from the q Roll out pins the whole operation from it, and um, it certainly makes it easier when you have the right equipment. Um, you know, the the grow out uh with the little slants on the bottom for the eggs roll out, and the right type of brooder. Uh, you can get them out the heating element. You can actually keep them in there the whole time for water. So, well, have a lot of benefit, but there's a lot of up front, for me at least, uh, and, and unless you already have these things, there's a lot of upfront expense. extension, there's a the learning curve, they're very difficult to hatch. I went through three or four rounds before I got the humidity right and was able
3: to get them to hatch.
1: My rabbits, on the other hand, I got two New Zealand Reds, I built two large outdoor hutches. they had plenty of space. Uh, when they were mature enough to breed, I put the doe in with the buck, 30, 35 days later, I had babies, just like you said about chickens, to get a broody bird is a lot easier. Um, same thing with uh, the rabbits. You know, they, they do their thing. They raise their babies. I'm already watering them daily, so I'm not doing anything extra. And the initial startup cost for raising rabbits, for me at least, was insignificant compared to all the things I did to raise quail. Now, granted, I probably overshot the quail a bit because I... Not all professional stuff, but it wasn't my intention. It, I was just fortunate enough to run across someone who was um, getting rid of it, and the price was right. But overall, I agree with your statement quail are better for per square foot, and they're a lot easier and quicker to butcher. Uh, you know, just drop top the dress off of them. But if you don't have any equipment and you're starting from scratch, you're more involved in starting quail than starting breasts. Hope this was helpful. Thank you so much for the
2: show, and uh, keep up the good work. Uh, I want to say, first of all, that was a great call, and I played it in spite of how bad the audio was. And if you've noticed, the audio probably came up in volume, down in volume, and up. In volume and down in volume, and that was despite me going through with my editor and doing something I usually won't do, which is looking for all the low spots in the audio, cutting them out, putting them on a different layer, and boosting them, and then pushing the whole thing through the leveling program that I use before I put out a show like this. And uh, it's probably the most likely scenario. It's from people turning their head away from the phone and then back to the phone. So please try not to do that, or it's a weak cell signal. This is why I kind of clarify with you guys, make sure there's a couple bars on the phone when you call in. I can't always clean up a call like this, even to the level that I did this one. Um, overall, I think that basically you're just affirming what I said on, on the call, which is, is quail are more productive. It, because that was the, the original question that led to this was, if I have a choice between rabbits and quail and I want greater productivity, which one's more productive? Quail. I think quail, again, the processing time alone, I can process a quail in under a minute without a knife. Okay, I mean, I I just can't do that. I mean, I can't get it, it all plucked and pretty and ready to put on a plate, butterflied and grilled over mesquite like a restaurant would, but to a usable meat product, primarily looking at the breast. If you want it breasted out, I can do it 15 seconds including killing the bird i wouldn't do it the way that i would have to to do that but i mean pop the head open the breast boom yank it out there it is there's a heart next to it still beating i'm done i mean it it really is about that fast i'd do a little more than that i think there's some value to the legs and thighs on a quail there's enough meat there to make it worth doing but you can't do that with a rabbit um the rabbit raising its own sure absolutely i agree you do have to feed them I don't think hatching them is really as difficult as, um, as the, the caller had, uh, a problem with it. Um, he says he had all professional gear and all, but my experience has been that if the humidity is a little high, it's fine. It's when it goes too low that's a problem. So, uh, that's, that's been my experience in talking to people that have raised quail and, and, and taking a look at the equipment they're using. And I know people doing it with pretty low end equipment. So, um, is it, a, is it a bigger investment to do quail than rabbits? Yeah, of course it is. Absolutely, of course it is. I mean, yes, having the cages with the tilted floors and all, I think that's the way to go. If you want to do what I suggested, which is pasture finishing your, your meat birds, you know, for like, like last two weeks or so, um, that's going to be moving them out there, moving them daily, building another apparatus. There's, there's no doubt. Um, but I actually think rabbits... Should be pasture finished if you're, if you're growing meat rabbits myself. I really do. I think that it is just and it high I don't mind keeping your breeders in hutches, but I think if you want the top quality product, I would probably pasture finished rabbits the way Joel Salton's son does. Anyway, good call. Thanks for all the extra information. And, and now you know some of the roadblocks you may run into that, that frankly I was unaware of. So thanks for those. Uh, let's take another call. Hi, Jack. This is Brian in Kansas and I had seen your call for, questions on Facebook. My call, My question for you is a business question. Are there any good resources out there
3: to find investors for your business background? I am a CPA
2: and I am looking to start my own practice and I have uh, a good chunk of money saved up to get it started but I would like uh, some additional funds to get it going. In, uh, in return I'd be willing to give uh, an investor a percentage of the profits uh, but I don't have a good way of trying to find somebody like that. Do you know of any good resources out there? Thanks. Love the show. Honestly, there's more and more sites popping up every day that are matchmaking sites, entrepreneurs and investors. And if you go to Google and you you type in find an investor for my business, you'll find all kinds of sites. I don't really have a lot of knowledge about any of them. Um I do know that one of the things you're going to run into is to find somebody that can invest in your business with you, that you don't have a pre-existing personal relationship. You're going to have to find what's called an accredited investor, which basically means they have a lot of money. I mean, there's other ways to qualify it, but in the end, that means they have a shitload of money. And you're allowed to be an accredited, you're allowed to invest in in strangers businesses because you've made an assertion that it's a good risk if you have a lot of money. And if you don't have a lot of money, the government protection doesn't let you. Now, when you're talking to people with money, and you want them to invest in your business? Let me tell you, as an entrepreneur who's had people come to me for investments, the things that will kill it because this is—it's not so much finding people; you can find them. It's how do you make a proposal that they're going to be interested in? Number one, they're going to want to see a business plan. They're going to want to see a SWOT analysis of the marketing that you're going to do. They want to see forecasted revenue. As a CPA, you should be able to do this stuff. If you don't have that, you're done. No one want to talk to you. Not interested. Because it's all about numbers, it's all about money. Don't care if you're passionate, don't care if you believe in what you're doing, don't care. I want to know the numbers. Next thing I know, what are you going to do with my money? Why? If you have a significant... I'm going to play devil's advocate here. I might sound hard on you, but I'm preparing you for what you're going to go through if you come to somebody that's actually qualified to invest with you and ask them for money. What are you going to do with my money? If you have a significant amount of your own money stored up, why don't you just use that and get your business going? That way, if you need more to grow your business, you could come back to me with some sort of a track record and customer base. As an investor, I'm not, in, I'm not really interested in investing in an idea. See, if you don't have a business yet, you haven't actually started, I'm not investing in a business. I'm investing in you and your idea. There's tons of businesses I can go invest in right now. You haven't started. So you already are in a major hole there. The thing that's going to kill most people that go When you start breaking down their analysis, they put a line in there for salary. See, they want to pay themselves a salary while they're building a business with my money. Well, if I wanted to pay you a salary, I would hire you as an employee and put you in my business. I don't want to invest in your company so you can pay yourself a salary. Do you understand? I mean, do you get that? And, I mean, the show to watch, to learn about the mentality of the people that have money that will invest in you, and don't think just because these guys on this show are billionaires that when you go to a multimillionaire, they're not going to ask you the same harsh questions. But it's Shark Tank. So you're going to give me a piece of the profits. No shit you are. That would be the only reason I would invest with you. Again, I'm not picking on you. I'm just talking about this is the hard-ass kind of stuff you're going to go through if you ask for somebody else's money. Oh, did you think I was going to be fair? You see, when you go to you come to me and you want me to invest my hard-earned money in your business and not even your business, your idea for a business, oh, great. So I get to risk my money and then you want to give me what you think is a fair piece of your business. Oh, no, 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 no. I want way more on my end than what's fair. Understand that. That's what you're talking about. Somebody's acting, whether they call themselves it or not, as a venture capitalist. You don't get a square deal. Oh no. The other thing is, you want to start a CPA practice, so that's you doing the work. So that's like a self-employed business that may or may not grow into a business. Most people that are venture capitalists are looking for large returns on significant amounts of money. So you're probably not going to get any money from somebody like that. So now you're, now you're into your own warm market, people that you know that believe in you enough that they'll put in a few thousand or ten thousand or twenty thousand dollars. Because you can't go solicit anybody but an accredited investor. And an accredited investor is generally going to ask all these tough questions. And if you can't answer these tough questions, you're not getting their money. And if the investment's not significant enough for the return to matter, then you're not going to get their money. So let me explain what I mean by that. Because you're a CPA, you should follow these numbers. You come to me and you say you want ten thousand dollars. Okay, uh, as a venture capitalist, you know, I'm looking for a 50% return on my money minimum. Minimum, and some long-term stake out of the business or some kind of big exit strategy that's going to be a big payday for everybody, right? So if I get a 50% return on $10,000, I make five grand. you have probably now wasted more than $5,000 worth of my time in this presentation for $10,000. You're not asking for enough money. Watch Shark Tank. You'll see it. You'll see them say, My problem is you're not asking me for enough money for what you want to do. Sounds crazy, but seriously, to be taken seriously, you have to be asking. So you almost have to go in at this. I'm going to, I want to start a CPA, you know, something that competes with Jackson Hewitt. And you probably aren't ready to do that yet. So what's my actual advice? If you have a significant amount of money saved up, Get yourself in a position where you have almost no overhead whatsoever and start building a client base and do it without anybody else. Because the boat anchor that an investor will put around your neck for this is unbelievable. Go to a bank and get a loan with the most agreeable terms you can get if you really need money that you don't have. But I I would say, what can you do with what you have? And be very clear on that. And how long can you survive... With the most abysmal financial projections during that period. And as a CPA, can you do something like this? Can you go to somebody like Jackson Hewitt or, you know, H&R Block and take seasonal work only and make a good return on your seasonal work? Which would be rate you know for like three months of tax time at the optimum tax time, where you're filing tax returns that are easy but you're a CPA and people are willing to pay money for it and done. Right? And use the rest of the year to try to build income. And maybe that's not the approach to take, but it's it's an approach to take. Or can you specialize in an industry that has very tight knit successful people in it? as a CPA specifically dedicated to that industry. Let's say you wanted to take me as a client and you're a CPA. I go, I got a great CPA. I really do. In fact, I have them through H&R Block, but I use the same person every year. Guy's done my taxes for 10 years. Love what he does. Does a really great job of finding things. I mean, the guy's way better than his position would indicate being associated with Block. Why should I use you? Well, I'm good. Well, he's good. All right. Well, what have you said to me, Jack, I understand you are an entrepreneur, and specifically, your entire operation is really internet-based. Yeah, that's me. Well, I've specialized in working with internet entrepreneurs, in maximizing the deductions and protections that we can develop based on that unique business model. Really? Sit down, let's talk. I mean, that I, I'm not saying you're getting my business, but we are having a conversation. Give me some examples. Show me what you've learned. Let's talk about this. Let's talk about it because this is the kind of thing I want to hear. Now, And if you could say, and what I've done is I've partnered with an investment advisor that specifically does the same thing I do and works with people in in Internet-based businesses on how to maximize their investment potential for their retirement because a lot of times people that do what you do um, don't save enough money for their retirement because they're so busy leveraging what they have, they don't really think about how to systematize putting money aside and how to do it in a way where that money's protected. And they look at a market like we're in today and they say – my money's safer in my business as is invested. Well, I I'm working with a guy that knows how to take a sizable portion of that re-leveraged money and put it into a safe, secure investment stream. And we only work with people like you. Okay, let's have a conversation. So, am I saying to go do this with internet entrepreneurs and take that niche? No, I'm saying that's a niche. You might work with farmers. I mean, seriously, if there's a lot of farmers around you, Most farmers have no time for this crap. They, they do what they can. But if, I mean, there's, we're learning Permanent ethos. There are so many ways that you have to structure and set things up from a tax standpoint to maximize what's deductible in agriculture. And so many ways, honestly, the government screws any farmer that's not living off a subsidy tit. That if you were specialized in that, we'd be talking to him right now. So I'm going to tell you, If you want to find investors, you've got to have an ironclad investment strategy for them, an ironclad business analysis, and they're going to take more than is fair for what they're going to invest. If you want to do it on your own, you're better off finding that niche and specializing and working with people in that niche. Just make sure your niche is big enough. Make sure there's enough people in your area that if you go into that niche and get 10% of them, you've got more business than you can handle. If there's only five or six people that fit that niche – it's not a good niche for you. You need a certain body count. That's my advice, and it's the best I can do. Let's take another call.
3: Hey Jack, it's Jason from Oklahoma. Uh, if you're going to mix your own chicken feed for uh, Larians, ends, uh, what uh, equivalents and which uh, grains or seeds would you use? Uh, I'm currently using uh, pellets from uh, Tractor Supply and want to get away from the corn and
4: the soy. Thanks.
2: Really good question, I definitely kick this over to expert panel member Darby Simpson. So, Darby, what say you on mixing your own feed
0: hello Jack this is Darby Simpson from the expert council calling in to answer Jason's question about mixing his own later feed um, Jason you mentioned that you're currently using pellets from tractor supply and the main thing I'm getting from you is that you want to drop the corn and the soy and that's completely possible to do um, but what you got to understand is that your chicken feed is basically made up of two components energy and protein and in the case of the pellets the corn is the energy and the soy is your protein. So what we need to focus on doing is, is finding uh, suitable replacements for those. Now the energy is pretty easy. Um, you can use something like oats. Uh, you could use wheat. You could look at using like barley or millet. There's a number of different things you could look to use. I would probably suggest oats. That's going to be the simplest, uh, closest thing to corn that you can put in for chicken feed and have ground up to mix for them to give them the energy they need. The Soy, on the other hand, is a little bit more complicated because there's a lot of different options that you can use. The first thing you can do, if you would like, is you can just replace that soy with an organic fish meal. Um, But I can tell you from my experience that, you know, what right now, what we pay for roasted soybeans is around like 40 or 50 cents a pound, and organic fish meal is like a buck 70, a buck 80 a pound. So the cost of your feed is going to go way up if you go that route. Um, What a friend of mine has been doing, and what we're actually testing right now with our layers out on pasture, is a uh, soy-free mix. Uh, It does have corn in it, uh, but the protein, he is actually making that by using uh, ground sunflower seeds, which are like 30% protein, and he's also using some field peas for a little bit uh, more protein, but primarily to get the lysine out of those. And he is making a 16 or 17% protein mix, uh, four layers. And then what he's also adding in that and what you'd want to add would be some kind of a, a calcium uh, for good eggshell quality. Uh, I would just probably suggest crushed oyster shell. Um, you can find that at any feed mill or probably at Tractor Supply or whatever kind of farms where you have there locally. Um, and what you're going to want to do though, is you're going to want to measure out all these different components so that you get the correct protein. And I'll be honest with you, it might be easiest to find a small local mill that would be willing to work with you on this and actually maybe even order some of these things for you. Um, they can probably get it in small enough increments that you could, you know, have 50 or a hundred pounds mixed up at one time and just have them mix it for you as opposed to trying to do it yourself. Uh, um, a good grain man is going to be able to sit down and help you calculate exactly how many pounds of each one of these components you need to get the right protein mix for your birds. Now, one other thing I want to mention to you, if your birds are out on high-quality pasture, if they've got a lot of clover and a lot of alfalfa and things like that that they can eat, you can get away with mixing a lighter protein for your layers, like a 15 or 16%. And like I said, that's about what we're using, a 16%. If they are in a run, uh, or if they're in a yard that really is just like you know fescue and bluegrass and just a typical like suburban type lot, uh, or they just don't have a lot of, of good legumes that they can forage on, you're going to want to crank that protein up to like a 17 or 18 percent um, to offset not having the good legumes for them to uh, to graze on while they're out in the yard. So anyway, you got some options there um i know you can also use something like crushed peanut shells if you want to uh, for protein. Uh, I know that Jack's talked about a feed mix that he uses. That's that's exactly what they're doing, is, is using uh, uh, peanut shells uh, as, as a part of the mix to help replace the soy. Um, but I, I, I tell you, I really like sunflowers. Uh, seems to work really well. We're having good results so far. Uh, the jury's kind of still out on that, but uh, if you could get a grain mill to order that in for you, I think that's probably your best bet as a as far as a good protein replacement uh you can also look at adding some uh pressed uh canola as well uh things of that nature just talk with a good grain man and tell him say look i really want to avoid corn and soy um and uh you know let him kind of help guide you as to what to put together um for your for your layer hens you you, you get a, you gotta have energy you gotta have protein um uh, personally i think if you can get gmo free corn i don't have an issue with that i mean all annual crops are you know it's it's all till monoculture um i don't really see one as being any better or worse uh than another one from a sustainability standpoint they're all equally bad um but if you want to get away from corn then i would say oats and if you want to get away from Soy, I would say look at a combination of uh, sunflower and field peas, or you could just go with a straight fish meal. But like I said, it's going to be really expensive. Jason, hope you find this helpful, and uh, good luck with your layers. Please chime in, let us know what you end up doing, and let us know how it works for you. To learn more about me, you can check out my website at darbysimpson.com. There's a lot of free articles you can read out there, uh, all kinds of how-to stuff for your own homestead or farming operation. I'm also available to do a one-on-one consultation if you need further help. Thanks so much for kicking this over to me, Jack. Bye-bye.
4: Hi, Jack. This is Ryan in Iowa, and I saw your request for calls on Facebook. My friend is planning on installing a Normandy-style hedgerow around the perimeter of his property. It'll cover around 2,000 linear feet and have a few thousand trees. He wants to complete the project in five years. What is the most cost and time-efficient way to produce the trees? Thanks for all that you do. Have a great day.
2: Uh, before we go into my advice on getting this done, let's start out with the thing that we have to kind of deal with before we, we go on to the how which is he wants to complete it in five years. My dad used to have a saying that was want in one hand and crap in the other and see which one fills up first. So what you want, is it doable? Classic answer to anybody that's honest about something with the amount of information I have, it depends. What's your rainfall? What's the soil conditions like? How rocky is it? What grows there? I mean – there's a lot of things we don't really know from the information you've given me so far. Okay, so there's there's – I'm not picking on the, the caller at all. I'm just giving you the limitation. I don't even know what state this is in. I don't know the soil conditions. I don't know the climate. I don't know the USDA zone. I don't know. But I can probably still answer it fairly well. And it's probably doable in five years unless you live in, like, the northern desert of Arizona or something like that, as long as you live in a reasonable, cool-temperate, somewhat rainfall-prevalent place, certainly can. We're actually going to be putting in hedgerow fencing all over the PermaEthos farm. And I have a recommendation from Nick Ferguson to the types of plants that we should use for this. So let me get that and read it to you. Next recommendation are black locust, mulberry, hazelnut, Chinese chestnut, jujube, rosa rugosa, honey locust, hawthorn, Siberian pea shrub, sea buckthorn in wetter area areas, uh, willow, or bodark. So I would tell you that we'll probably use all of those. The fastest growing and most useful for a, a hedgerow as far as actually creating a is probably Bodark and you might not have any clue what Bodark is Bodark is also called Osage Orange and Horse Apple Uh, and it is a wonderful tree that will grow in probably other than desert climates 90% of the United States it's an extremely hardwood it's been used for a lot of things from tool handles to fence posts to making bows Um, it is dirt cheap to produce and I'll tell you about that in a second um, black locust, it also works very well. It's a good bee tree. It's a good forage tree. And as long as it's not disturbed, it doesn't go rampant and spread with runners the way people think it does. I could say pretty much the same thing about honey locust. Um, jujube is expensive unless you're planting it the way I'm going to tell you to plant everything else. And when you plant it the way I'm going to tell you to plant everything else, it doesn't produce much that's edible but it would work as a hedge tree. Um, Rosa Ragusa, very easy to propagate from cuttings, but it's low and it's more of um, a second layer that would act as a good uh, deterrent from anybody going underneath things, if they could get underneath things. Hazelnut, a little tricky to do from seed, but it's okay. Mulberry can be done from seed with the right seed and can be done very easily from cuttings with the right mulberry trees. Um, Hawthorn can be done very easily from seed. Siberian pea shrub, very easily from seed. Buckthorn can be definitely done from seed. Willow, really easy to do from cuttings. The most cost-effective way to get this done is to do most things either from seed or from cuttings. And that is, without a doubt, the most cost-effective way. And with the amount of trees that we're talking about here... It's, it's probably what you're, what you're looking at doing from just a financial standpoint. And I know people say, but trees take forever to grow from seed. They, they really don't. Um, as long as you can produce the type of tree you want or get the type of product off it you want, you are probably much better off growing a tree from seed than growing a grafted variety. It will catch up to a one- or two-year-old grafted tree in that five-year period. If not, they'll be dead even at six, and that tree will be well ahead at seven or eight years of age. All right On a five-year timeline, you lose almost nothing, and you can't afford to do it another way. We certainly can't. I'm going to say in a 2,000-linear-foot um, situation, you should probably be planting 4,000 trees to account for losses and for culling, like one every six inches. I'm dead serious. And it's straight line. Like if you if the seeds you're using will fit in like a hand rolled seed planter that you fill up the hopper and start walking and, and popping them in every six inches. To get a multi species shrub, you're probably gonna have to do a lot more by hand. Start thinking about how much work that is. And if you think, well planting four thousand seeds is a lot of work, think about planting four thousand trees and what the expense is with a loss ratio of maybe fifty percent. Can't irrigate the whole thing. Not practical. Right, can't do earthworks to irrigate it because, well, it won't work. You can't put anything on contour if you're trying to create a hedgerow. It's 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 just not very practical. You can maybe get some of it swaled, but then that doesn't really, you know, I mean, it's not practical. I guess you could do hugel beds to act as part of your hedgerow and then hedge up the hugels, but that's a huge earthworks uh, job. Gonna have to cl- if it unless this is field, you're gonna have to clear. Uh, lines to do it with if it's a semi-wooded area already. Right? So, um, this is the... Like, if you just said, I just want a hedgerow. Don't care what's growing. I just want hedgerows and I want it to stop anything from getting through. I'd go with Bodark, a.k.a. Osage Orange. And this is how I would do it. You take the big, sticky green things and stick them in a bucket full of water until they fall apart and the seeds come off of them. And uh, once you do that, you can separate the seeds out. I'd want to plant these things in the spring, and instead of getting all complicated with stratification or what have you, I would put them in a place that's protected from predators, in a hole in the ground where it's nice and cold, some kind of cage around it because mice squirrels will get in there and tear them all apart on you. So I'd put them in there, and I'd overwinter them, and when you got towards spring where you're ready to plant them, you throw them in the bucket like I said, you separate your seeds out, and when your soil temperature's about, it doesn't even really matter. Because if you put it in the ground when it's too cold, it's just going to sit there and wait to germinate. But getting closer to like a 50-degree soil temperature time of year, you're getting much closer to a germination point. 60 to 70 is probably perfect for them. And put them in the ground every six inches along the the hedgerow. And maybe more. You get about 200 to 200 seeds out of one. These things are everywhere. If you find a place where they're growing, you can get thousands and thousands of seeds easy. Because some of them aren't going to make it. In the first year, your best ones will grow three to five feet tall as a big, long whip. Go along your line, and if you have any that you just don't feel are going to be worth keeping, yank them out. Take them and lay them over and put rocks on them. So that they don't break them, just lay them over in the fall and put a rock on them. They'll start to root where they touch the ground And about every two inches, they'll send up a branch that'll look like a new long tree. And you start weaving them together year after year, and in five years, you won't get through that. A bull won't get through that. And that would be the easiest. If you want to do it with these multi-species, then you kind of do the same thing, but you got to learn the germination tricks for each one. Chestnuts pretty much need cold stratification. You can put them in the same pit with your Osage oranges, and you pretty much just take the chestnut and stick it in the ground, and it grows. Hazelnuts require a little bit of jockeying around with, and at eight minutes into your answer right now, I I can't get into all of these things. I'll tell you another plant that would work great for a hedgerow is apples. Apples are so simple. You take the pits out of apples, and you store them in a cool, dry place. When you're ready to stratify them, get paper towel, wet it, put all your apple seeds in a paper towel, fold a paper towel over, stick it in a Ziploc bag, throw it in a refrigerator for 30 days. By the time you open it, there will be little roots coming out of almost every seed. Plant those seeds. And you can do the same thing. You can lay them over after that first or second year of growth. They they don't grow as fast as a a boat ark, but they grow and then they produce something edible. And you can plant multi-species in with each other. But I'm I'm saying I would go with like a six-inch separation maximum to do this project, especially at 2,000 feet. It's not that long if you're doing it with seed. And I would plant a bunch of different species, honestly. But the one that's gonna make it work is gonna be Osage orange. And uh the easiest, easiest thing to do. If you live where hazelnuts will grow, hazels will do a great hedgerow too. They really will. Um, and the thing is hazels you can a lot of places where hazels will grow, they won't necessarily produce a lot though. So it's up to you what you wanna do. But that's how I would do it. And I wouldn't even think about doing it with anything other than Rooted cuttings and seeds. At, at the density you're talking, um, let's just do it this way. What if you said, I'm going to do it every foot, and I'm going to do bare root trees, and I'm going to pay about $10 on average per tree, which you could probably do. So you need 2,000 trees. It's $20,000. It's not financially viable. It just isn't. Um... Hey, another thing that would do real well in a hedgerow like that, too, is autumn olive, and you can reproduce those from seeds and cuttings really easily, too. So, But Bodark's the best. Let's take another one.
4: Hey, Jack. This is uh, David. I saw your request on Facebook for calls, um, and so I, I decided to call in. I, I've been listening. First of all, let me say thank you for uh, all that you do. I'm a big fan. But you said something the other day that I couldn't disagree with more. Um, you said that atheists don't believe in anything. And uh, I, I don't have a belief in God or gods uh, that, by definition, makes me an atheist. But I certainly believe in it in, in things. I I believe in uh, principles. I try to live my life by principles. Uh, some of the things I believe in is are uh, equality under the law, the non-initiation of force. Uh, I believe in protecting my family and providing for myself. Uh, and, and so I just wanted to give you a chance to maybe um, clear clear the record or, or maybe you misspoke. Uh, and so um, I thought I'd use this as an opportunity to give you a chance to address that subject. Thank you, Jack.
2: Um, I didn't misspeak, and I don't know that I have the record to clear, but I may have a a context to clear. Everything is always needs to be taken in context. When I say atheists don't believe in anything... I don't mean mean that they don't believe in anything at all. I mean they don't believe in anything spiritual. They don't believe in anything beyond themselves. And I just think it's a terrible way to live. And I think you have a huge hole in your your life if you choose to remove the possibility of anything spiritual from it. Of course you believe in things. I'm sure you believe in gravity. I'm sure you believe in cars and trucks. I'm sure you believe in being a good good father to your family. Uh, I'm sure you believe that tables hold stuff. I mean, so you you got to take the context there. Clearly when someone says something like, atheists don't believe in anything, they don't mean that you don't believe in anything at all, because then you'd believe in nothing, period, and you'd, you'd have to be floating in the vacuum of empty space, and then you'd still have to believe in yourself. Descartes, I think, therefore I am. In fact, Descartes, actually, to get to I think, therefore I am, said, I doubt my own existence, and I doubt that I am doubting. But in the end, to doubt my own doubt, or even doubt my doubt, I must be, I think, therefore I am. So clearly, you got to take context. Like say you don't believe in anything. I don't mean we don't believe in stuff. I mean You don't believe in anything spiritual. And I do think it's sad. I think it's, I think it's a terrible view of life. I also want to, I do want to clear something up. I think the majority of people that say they're atheists are not atheists. I think the majority of them are a lot more open-minded than atheists would lead one to believe, and I think they are actually agnostic. They doubt the existence of God. Um, For someone to actually say, I absolutely know there is no God, there is no spirit, there is no nothing, when we die we're worm dirt, that's all that there is, there's no spiritualism, there's no nothing, is a big step. And most atheists, when you have a conversation with them and you press them on that, you say, are you saying that it's a complete impossibility that there's anything beyond our known existence, that there's anything spiritual at all? They say, well, it's possible. And then, okay, now you're an agnostic. And I have a lot less sympathy or pain or concern for you if you're an agnostic because you may at some point then come to an understanding that there is something spiritual. I don't care what somebody believes. And I don't care if you're an atheist. It doesn't really bother me. I feel bad for you, but I feel bad for people for a lot of things that I don't really spend a lot of time worrying about. You know, if someone that uh, that's eating Twinkies and Ho-Hos every day, I, I feel bad that they're destroying their body. But I don't really sit around, you know, mulling around and like, how do I get this person to stop eating Twinkies and Ho-Hos? It's up to you, right? You do, live however the hell you want. That's called liberty and freedom, and that means some people are going to make poor choices. I am not a religious person from the standpoint that most people would think of. I'm I'm a deist, which means I believe that there is a god of some sort that is an architect or creator or force that actually controls the structure of the universe. Uh, I actually believe that we as humans are co-creators of that existence, that once the creator created this, everything we do to touch and modify it alters the creation, and and therefore we're co-creators. So if I plant a field of beans, I've changed the creation. If I plant a forest, I've changed the creation. But I'm not the the, the originator. And everything works too perfectly. Everything is too well-timed. Everything is too beautiful. The essence of the universe is actually a symphony. And, and that is not something that just happens by chance. We as beings are not something that just happens by chance. And, and this is where I'll get emails from people trying to save my soul. Please don't waste your time. Please, please, please don't waste your time. And when people know I'm a former Catholic, they're always like, I'm, I'm sorry for whatever harm the church, you know, caused you. And, the church did not cause me harm i simply woke up to a different reality and walked away though i've seen the church cause a lot of harm and if your first instinct when you're evaluating a ch- you know someone that left a church is did it harm you and you use the word harm consistently and catholics always do on their win back campaigns you need to examine why that's even the case i watched my my best friend in the world go through hell simply to marry someone Because he had been previously married and what the Catholic Church made him go through. And her father was, let's put it this way, he got them a blessing from the Pope after all that was done on their wedding day. So that's how connected in the Catholic Church this man is. And it was very important to them to be a Catholic marriage. I know my friend doesn't give a damn about the Catholic Church. He did what he did because he loved this woman, and they put him through hell. I had I had to fill out a 15-page questionnaire that the church sent me about its previous marriage as a long-term friend, and I only did it because he was a friend. All right, so I don't need to be saved. <laughs> you can believe whatever you want, and you can be anything from a devout member of, a, of an organized faith to an atheist, and I'm totally cool with you. But if you're telling me you're an atheist, then my statement that you don't believe in anything, qualifying it with anything beyond what you can see and touch and know in the physical, stands. Because you don't. Not by my statement, but by your own. And the reason I think that's a poor way to live is there are so many mysteries to the universe, and there is so much evidence that there is is something more that to close that off closes the mind off to the potential. And I actually think most people that are atheists and even, you know, really staunch agnostics, like they'll admit that maybe there's a possibility, but really they like they're like at the edge between atheism and agnosticism have evaluated revealed re- revealed religions, have decided for themselves that this is mythology and it's a method of control and they're so turned off by it that it all must go the baby, the bathwater, the whole thing. And I think that step, just because you disagree with someone with their view of the spiritual or their view of God or their view of the universal force to go from they must be wrong so all of it's wrong is a very close-minded way to live. You're free to do it. I won't try to drag you over to my way of thinking. In fact, my faith precludes me from doing that because I believe in free will, completely believe in free will. So if someone asks me, I'll tell them anything they want to know about what I think and what I believe and why I believe it to be true, but I won't try to convince them that I'm right. It's 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 not my business what they believe. It just isn't. And so, atheists, you don't believe in anything beyond the physical. You don't believe in anything spiritual. And I think that's a mistake. Because I think, there's again, there's evidence that that's not the case. Now, do I think you're right when you say, all these people over here that believe they need to go to confession, or all these people over here that believe they need to pay to the church, or all these people over here that think they need to pray three times a day, or whatever, are wrong? I agree with you. I agree with you. When you, when you and when you, if you tell me I think that these are methods of control of individuals, and there's another form of government and another form of one man using fear and myth to control another man, I agree with you. And many of my listeners are very upset that I feel that way. I just hope they can look at me the way I look at you. You're free to believe what you want to believe. I'll believe what I want to believe. And if we can't live in a world where everybody's okay with everybody believing what they want, as long as they're not enforcing their will on another man, we have a real problem. That's my case to those that say there's nothing. I'm only saying maybe you might want to consider opening the door to there could be something and then explore for yourself what that might be. And you might find a lot more fulfillment and a lot more answers and a lot more reality if you do that. That's all I'm saying. And just to be clear to the people that are members of revealed religions, right, I do not doubt the fact that you can have moving, real, spiritual experiences within your faith. I don't doubt it at all. And I don't doubt that it can't do wonderful things for you. I just don't believe in the core beliefs that you believe in. And there's nothing that could ever change that. There really isn't. Anyway, let's go on and take another one.
4: Hello, Jack. This is Brian from Northern Illinois. Um, I have an expert counsel question for Chef Keith Snow. I was sitting here making burgers for the grill and um, I always have a problem with them either turning into round balls or breaking apart or whatever. So what's the secret, super secret, chef magic of making a a hamburger patty uh, that will grill up nice and be round and whatnot instead of a ball of goodness they're still good but they're just not what I expect as a burger so chef keith take it away man
2: thanks bye so i kicked that one over to keith because that's what the caller asked for i have my thoughts on this let's see if they uh, match up with uh chef keith's thoughts
5: Hey, Brian from Northern Illinois, it's Chef Keith Snow here with Harvest Eating and the Harvest Eating Podcast. I wanted to answer your burger question, and then we'll talk about some best practices for burgers. Now, um, you're saying that these things want to ball up on you, and I've seen that many, many times. It's quite annoying when you start with a relatively flat burger, and then you've got this rounded, you know, almost... Uh, Like a lemon type thing and you try to put that on a bun. It's, and it's, it shrinks and gets too tall and it's a nightmare. Very simple. Um, I'm assuming you pattied up your own burgers. What you do is just take your pinky or a straw and in the very center, just poke a hole in it, a little like a little dimple all the way down to the, to the board or to the paper, whatever you have your, your little patty. And that action right there should, um, keep it from balling up on you. So that's how you solve that problem. But since you asked about burgers, I couldn't, uh, couldn't help but waxing on philosophical about them. Uh, there's definitely best practices to making good burgers at home. And, uh, this Saturday, I record this on Thursday. This Saturday is, uh, my daughter's 12 year old birthday party here at our house. She's got seven or eight girls coming. So I figured what, um, what a great thing to do. It would be to make some nice burgers. And I've got a, uh, a flat top griddle. It's called the Blackstone, and uh, it's pretty key for making burgers. Um, so, some best practices for burgers. Number one, you do not want to buy pre-formed burgers. Now, I know a lot of you. There's a, a popular burger out there. It starts with a B, and uh, I've seen them. They're, I guess, they're edible, but it's not something I would want to eat. Uh, so I don't want any preformed frozen burgers. Next up, definitely, definitely, definitely do not buy your your minced up meat. Don't buy your chopped meat or your burger meat, whatever you call it, in a tube. Now, this is an insidious practice, in my opinion, when you go to the store and they've got this tube of beef. Now, on the surface, it seems like a pretty great thing, right? Oh, look, it's already ground up. You just cut the tube open. Out it comes. Um, you don't have to mess with that diaper thing that they put at the bottom of the ground meat packages. However, you've got to think of the source. Now, all of you TSPers out there, a lot of you are homesteaders or want to be. You want to eat better. You want to do things um, the best way. Buying meat that came from a giant food um not a food. I wouldn't call it food, but a giant meat grinding or meat packing facility. This is not what you want. And I know most people don't want to talk about this. They just want to eat their burger. And you guys are saying, "Come on, Chef Snow, just let us have us our burgers." But you need to you need to realize this. When you buy it in a tube, um, you are getting meat that you have no idea where it comes from. It's it's a giant plant. You've got thousands and thousands of cows being processed every day. They could come from anywhere. It's all ground up together in one of those giant facilities. Now, there's many, many times when people get sick from eating meat from those facilities. So how do you prevent that? Two ways. If you're going to go to your store, um, you need to ask them if they grind the meat in the store. Now, could they do a lousy job cleaning their meat grinder? Sure, they could. But in general, um, the a good supermarket's meat area will be cleaned and, and inspected all the time. I would rather buy meat, if I'm going to buy it in the store, um, where they grind it in the store. And you have to be careful and you need to ask them. Because, uh, for instance, some stores will have their market grind or their regular grind, and... A lot of them will be buying that tubed beef in, in bigger tubes and then taking it out and just grabbing it and throwing it on a tray and putting the saran wrap over the top of it and there's your, your meat. It, and most people assume that it was ground in a store, but it wasn't. So you need to ask that meat manager and some of them will have their own what they call market grind. And that's generally going to be scraps from when they cut steaks and, and other uh, meat for their meat area. Now that's that's okay it's it's a one step better than buying the tube meat however if you're a serious burgermeister you need to be grinding your own meat and this is simple um you know you can get a hand cranked meat grinder at a yard sale on eBay whatever for 20 bucks or if you've got a stand mixer a lot of them will have an attachment and that's what I generally do I've got a Cuisinart mixer don't buy it, by the way. It's a piece of garbage. But it does grind meat pretty well. And it has an attachment, and you can um, cut up your meat, grind it, and then you know that everything is clean, and you get to select the meat. Now, this is the most important. Now, um, choosing meat, number one, what's okay? Chuck and sirloin, very popular combination for burgers. That's, um, that's not bad. Better is going to be short ribs, brisket, and sirloin. And if you can get those three, your burgers are going to taste much better. Um, if you can get some elk meat, that's another story. But, you know, you got to be careful with elk because it can be very dry. Same case if you just use all all sirloin. And some people, you know, the fat police has got you so scared that you're running to buy the leanest beef that you can. And then when you cook it, it's dry as hell. And that's the problem. You need to shoot for 25% fat, at the very least 20 so don 't buy ninety ten burger meat at the store and then wonder why the stuff is dry. Um, not a good thing, so you want to grind your own if you can brisket short rib and and uh, sirloin and just shoot for about a you know thirty three percent of each that 's going to give you roughly twenty five percent fat roughly give or take and that 's going to mean a juicier burger um, Let me see here so the next thing you want to figure out is do you want to season the meat? before you patty it up or season the outside of the burgers. Now, there's uh, several ways to do that. We've got a lot of people that buy our harvest-eating spices, and they will take a combination and uh, use that to season the meat and then patty it up like that. A couple tablespoons of the uh, Montana steak seasoning, maybe one tablespoon of the Northern Italian makes awesome burgers. We've got people that use our pork seasoning, uh, which is also great on beef. Um, to season it up. We do sell a beef seasoning as well that you can use for that purpose. But either inside or at the very lead, at least, um, when you get it pattied up, at the very last minute, salt and pepper on the outside, on the grill, salt and pepper the top. Um, now, what are you cooking on? Um, a grill, a flat top, a gas grill, a charcoal grill. There's definitely best practices there. I'm going to try to keep it really short because I don't want to take Jack's whole show here. Uh, I prefer a flat-topped burger myself. Um, if I'm going to have a grilled burger, I definitely i am not a big fan of gas grills. I like charcoal, and I like lump, lump charcoal, not the briquettes, which tastes like rocket fuel. Um, now, you can use, if you don't have a flat top like I was talking about, you can just take a cast-iron skillet, put it on your grill, and let that thing get nice and hot and you can cook your burgers right on that. Now, one of the problems there is um sometimes your fat will kind of you know pool up and if you don't if you want some of that to run off, what you can do, it doesn't bother me, but a lot of people are still freaked out about it. What you can do is just take some tin foil, roll it into a ball and put it right on the grill and then take your cast iron um, skillet and put that on top so it's leaning just a bit and then you cook your your burgers right on that skillet and the fat will kinda wander away if if that's concerning you. It doesn't bother me. But these are some of the best practices for making uh great burgers. And another thing is don't take thirty-seven degree burger meat, patty it up and throw it on the grill. Let it warm up a bit because you're gonna have better results and more even cooking that way. Um, another thing I suggest is uh, I love English muffins with burgers. Now, I tend not to eat any gluten anymore, so my burger will just go on a plate and have a bunch of wonderful things on it. But if you're the, um, the bun type, um, English muffins are great, uh, potato rolls are great, but I would avoid those really. You don't want two inches of bread on the bottom and two inches of bread on the top. It's not a, it's not a bread sandwich. It's a burger. So those, uh, English muffins make tremendous, um, uh, vehicles for burgers. Also think about what you're going to put on it. The ones that I'm going to make, uh, I'm going to be bacon. Then I'm going to take some uh, onions, some red onions, slice them thinly, and then I'm going to deep fry them. So I'm going to have little fried onion rings with some bacon. And then I'm making a homemade daddle pepper barbecue sauce to put on there. Uh, of course, the kids are not going to be able to have that, but the adults that come will uh, indulge in that. So Brian, I hope that answers your question. If you have any Um, You know, further things to ask me, it's keith at harvesteating.com. I'm happy to help you out with your next burger adventure. Um, I want to also mention to all you TSPers out there, we are running a special sale right now using the coupon code SURF, S-U-R-F, SURF, 25% off anything in the store. And as of Monday, our olive oil is back in stock. So with that, I hope everybody has a great weekend, and uh, maybe you'll give some of these burger tips a try and make some amazing burgers. So, uh, Brian, thanks, man. Happy burgering. Later.
1: Hey, Jack, this is Mike from L.A. I saw your request for phone calls on Facebook, and I just had a quick question about uh, some Brazilian pepper trees growing all over my property. Um, They just seem to be popping up everywhere. Is there any use for them, or should I just... uh Just tell them down, get rid of them. Thanks again, Jack.
2: This is not a plant I have experience with at all. So I looked up some information on it and I'm going to read some information for you on it. This is uh, Rain Tree Tropical Plant Database. Um, As far as, before I even say any of this though, Um, I have to say this is considered an invasive species by the United States Department of Agriculture, and I don't always agree with the USDA on a lot of things, and I don't necessarily agree 100% on this one, but... Uh, I do think it this tree has been invasive enough in enough places to cause some problems. And it is difficult to eradicate. It does compass very vigorously. So if you cut it down, it's going to grow back. And you cut it down, it's going to grow back. So you can harness that as a chop and drop solution. Um, of course, they recommend using herbicides and chemicals to try to kill it. I'm not real pleased with that. Uh, but let me tell you some of the herbal properties and actions of this tree in traditional use. Killing bacteria, killing fungi, uh, killing Candidia yeast, reducing inflammation, drying secretions, regulating heartbeat, lowering blood pressure. It's a mild laxative, uh, stimulates the uterus, heals wounds, relieves pain, kills cancer cells, relieves depression, relieves spasms, kills viruses, stimulates digestion, increases urination, stimulates menstruation, reduces phlegm, kills insects, uh, standard dosage is leaf and bark usage. Bark decoction, a half cup twice daily. Leaf infusion, a half cup daily. Tincture, two to three milligrams twice daily. So it seems like a powerhouse medicinally, but I'm not familiar with it. I'm reading a website. They could be wrong, but I want to read some documented stuff that they're citing here. A monograph published in 1976 on Brazilian pepper tree's essential oil indicated no toxicity in animals and humans ingesting or applying the oil topically. Today, herbalists and natural health practitioners in both North and South America use Brazilian pepper tree for most colds, flu, and other upper respiratory infections as a remedy for hypertension and for irregular heartbeat, for fungal infections and candidia, and as a female balancing herb for numerous menstrual disorders, including menstrual clamps and excessive bleeding. Um, traditional PEP preparation. The leaves are best prepared as an infusion, and the bark best preferred as a decoction or an al- alcohol tincture. Generally, one half cup of bark decoction twice daily is used for colds, flus, sore throats, and other upper respiratory infections. 2-3 milliliters of a 4-1 to one tincture are taken 2-3 to three times daily, can be substituted if desired. This traditional remedy is also used as a heart tonic and for irregular heartbeat, a leaf decoction twice daily, or as needed, is generally used for menstrual disorders. Um, contraindications, this plant was shown to stimulate the uterus in animal studies and therefore should not be used by people in pregnancy. Drug interactions, none reported. However, the plant has exhibited hypertensive actions in animal studies. In light of such, it is conceivable the use of the plant may protenerate uh, high blood pressure medications. So I don't think you should take anything you're not 100% familiar with um, without consulting a medical professional. But it seems like there's at least some real valid um, Medicinal and traditional herbal uses for Brazilian pepper tree. That said, if you have them all over your property, you probably need one to do this with. And given that it is an invasive species that doesn't have a direct um, forage or food use, I would eliminate most of them. I would probably do so through chop and drop, cutting them to the ground, allowing them to grow back and cutting them to the ground again. Since they do produce some seed, I think you need to time your cutting to cut them when they're not bearing seed so that you're not procreating them through chop and drop, which may be too late to do this year. Again, I'm not very familiar with this plant. Listening Audience, if you are familiar with Brazilian pepper tree and have uses for this plant, I would love to hear from you in today's comment section again, episode 1404 of the Survival Podcast. You can look up if you are in the future listening to me from the past. Let's take another call.
3: Hi, Jack. This is Jerry from Michigan. My question is for you or possibly Darby Simpson. It's about breeding chickens and how to keep the uh, breed true to type. My details are I'm running a mixed breed flock most of the time, but when I want to replenish either the egg layers or meat birds, I want to know what I need to consider to make sure I get the breed I'm looking for when they uh, put the hens and the roosters together and look at the eggs, get the eggs and put them in the incubator, how long do I need to wait before I select those eggs in case there's a rooster from another breed that's been with that hen. Thanks for hearing all you do. Bye.
2: I asked Darby if he wanted this, and he said he's not a chicken breeder. He's a chicken grower, and he, he punted it back to me. So here's my thoughts. I think that the first issue is if you're trying to breed birds that are true to type, then you should specialize in one or two and, and work on making those the best you can, or if you're going to work on a specific cross a specific hybrid, Buff Orpington, Rhode Island Red, then focus on that one or two things only because if you try to do 10 different breeds without a really professional, full-on commercial setup, you're not going to do a good job of anything. And even that's difficult. And what commercial breeders do is they just keep the birds separated. The other issue you're going to run into is that roosters... When you have multiple roosters in a large flock, they will cut out kind of a harem, and taking a hen from one to the other is difficult. Don't think that the hen doesn't have some level of a choice what rooster she bonds with if there's more than one available. So you're going to have to have some way to absolutely separate the birds, and the number I would use for time and separation would be a minimum of three weeks, and I think four would be better. After four weeks of not being around rooster A, if she's laying fertile eggs and she's been available at rooster B, those eggs are probably almost 100% fertilized by rooster B. So let's talk about the easiest way that you could do this. The easiest way you could do this is to keep one rooster to a flock. And if you wanted multiple species of roosters to work with, keep completely and wholly separated flocks, which is difficult. And that's why I'm saying if you want to go more than two breeds that you're really working on, it's almost impossible unless you go to kind of a commercial level, productivity level. But if you want to just try separation, you can do that. But birds develop preferences. And you almost have, like, the way I would really tell you to do it, this is going to sound harsh, but this is the way I would do it. I would bring up a young rooster of the breed I wanted to breed with. And as he got to the point where he was getting to where he could start breeding, I would kill the other roosters. And if I needed two roosters and I wanted buff Orbingtons to work with with this cycle, I'd raise four or five buff Orbington roosters, and I would buy them. Just to make sure I've got exactly what I'm looking for, I'd buy those and bring those genetics into my flock. I would evaluate them, I'd pick the two best ones, if I had a big enough flock for two roosters, I'd kill all the buddies and I'd kill the mature roosters, and then those birds will take over as as flock roosters. And then I'm not going to worry about which roosters breeding, I know i got buff Orbington blood. And in that cycle, I'm going to reproduce buff Orpingtons. Now, what if I have buffs and I have Rhode Island Reds and I have Egyptian Faomis and I have some production Reds and what have you? In most instances, if you pay attention, you can develop an eye and know when I see an egg, that is from this bird. There's a lot of similarities between, you know, when I look at the, the eggs that my Rhode Island Reds are laying and my red sex links are laying. And a sex link is a hybrid that's bred in a certain way so that when it's a baby, you can look at it the day it hatches and go male, female, male, male, male female, female, male, male, just like that. The, the, the coloration on them, that's why they call them sex links. So the genetic cross leads to a link that you can see visually. A a a a phenotype versus a genotype, so you can visually see this is a little brown spotted one. That's a girl. This one's a little puff, white white looking yellow bird. That's a male. Those sex links. So the sex links have a lot of Rhode Island Red genetics in them. The the ones I have anyway, and they lay an egg that looks very much like the Rhode Island Reds I have, but there's a little bit of difference. And if you look at them side by side, you can see it. And if you pay attention to who's laying when and and get the eggs, you can go Buff Orpington, Rhode Island Red, Wells Summer, okay? And if you keep birds with distinctive egg types, so if you keep some Easter egg chickens, right, that lay this bluish-green egg, well, you know who that is. And if you pick a breed to work with that lays a very dark brown egg, you know who that is. A light brown egg, you know who that is. Okay, This all works to have hybrids, by the way, that you've, you've reproduced of your own. And a, 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 sing, a single breed that does a white egg. So now you have four very distinctive eggs, four different breeds of hens. Keep it there. Bring roosters into the flock and cull roosters out. That's about the only way I can see this done on a small scale. So you're doing this, this breed this cycle, this breed next cycle. Or at the most, you are splitting your flock in two and running two cycles. Concurrently, Rhode Island Reds and Buff Orpingtons. Okay, because here's where it starts to break down. If you do reproduce some some hybrids, and I like to do that, and I've got a Buff rooster, and I've crossed him with a Rhode Island Red, <laughs> the distinctiveness of the egg is now more complicated. Now, what we can do is we can take our girls, and we say these are all Buff Orpington girls, and I want to make sure I'm I'm reproducing nothing but Buff Orpingtons this time. I know that my rooster has been doing his job well. I've observed it, and, you know, you open the coop in the morning, and you observe it. And you know he's doing a good job, so these girls are probably fertile. I can sequester them for a time during the day until they lay. Now, here's what's going to happen. You're going to stress them. Why have I been removed from my flock? Why has he done this to me? They may not lay. Eventually, toward the end of the day, when you let them go back, they may lay then. They get mixed in with the other eggs. You're not sure. But if you do it long enough and you keep them happy and you keep them in a good environment and they're well-fed and you do everything you can to keep them happy and and not stressed out, they may lay for you in sequestration. Now you know where the eggs came from. The the better way, again, if you want to work with a multi-flock breed, learn to identify the eggs by sight. Because... It doesn't matter if the buff was bred to a Rhode Island Red or the buff was b- b- bred to another buff. The egg's going to look, when it comes out of the chicken's butt, the exact same. What comes out of the egg is what changes. So you can at least determine that. And that's that would be the advice for somebody that wants to play around with this that I would give. Get chicken hen breeds that lay eggs that are visually identifiable and then control your roosters. And if you have to... Control them through death. The other thing you could do... Is you could have two roosters. And just take one rooster away. But this is bad. Now... The rooster has now had the flock to himself. And it's been a big enough flock that your two roosters have been getting along. And now he's Alpha Rooster. When you bring the other rooster back... He ain't gonna be welcome. So... Either you're splitting the flock in half or you're doing one run at a time. And, and on a small scale, it's probably the only way that you're going to be able to do that. Um, but that's how I would do it. And you can have a lot of fun with your hybrids this way. Except, like I said, when they start laying, you got to kind of identify what eggs they're doing. But you could do an Americana, right? And they have a very distinctive egg. You could do a white leghorn. She's going to lay a big white egg. You can do um, a bird like a Buff Orbiton that lays kind of a light, tannish brown egg, and a bird like a Rhode Island Red that lays a dark brown egg. And you can visually identify those eggs, and by just flipping roosters, you know what you're breeding. You know, and a rooster's sexually mature at about six months of age. He'll start getting it done at that age. So you could still, just by flipping roosters, and that means flipping them into the crock pot, like this removal and reintro of a rooster is not usually good for flock stability. By just flipping roosters, you could do two cycles a year. So you could do a cycle from your birds and, and you know, hatch birds January, February, bring up a rooster when he starts doing his job, the, the original rooster, give it a month, start incubating eggs. Um, if you want to get that involved, that's how I'd do it. Hey, Jack. This is David. My question
3: is. What are your thoughts on permaculturalists consulting for oil, gas, and mineral companies? I know these companies don't exactly have the best PR image, and probably for good reasons, but uh, I was wondering if maybe the problem is the solution. Uh, These companies probably really aren't going anywhere anytime soon, and at the moment they seem sort of like a necessary evil, you know, until we... And kind of move towards more permacultural uh, and sustainable solutions. Um, and I believe I've heard interviews of guys like Mark Shepard and Darren Doherty um, kind of on a similar note talking about working with clients who aren't necessarily uh, following permaculture ethics necessarily but uh, by still using pesticides and herbicides on their properties but uh, these guys like Shepard and Doherty are still trying to move them incrementally towards uh, you know, permaculture solutions and just seeing the, the benefits and advantages of you know, those types of systems as opposed to conventional systems. Um, and I was just wondering you know, if you thought it was possible to market permaculture solutions to these uh, oil and gas and, and mineral companies maybe offering consultancy services to help repair the damage that uh, that they do. Um, I don't know if this concept makes me feel dirty or not, but I just wanted to kind of get your take on it. Thanks, Jet. Keep up the good fight.
2: Um, this is where, you know, permacultures is like, oh, God, no, not oil and gas. And that's just a stupid, stupid, stupid thing. I see comments all the time on YouTube and Twitter and Facebook and all kinds of places where permacultures are discussing permaculture. And it's evil oil and gas. And they should just all go out of business instantly. And we need to stop this. And my response is always, well, go home and go outside of your house or in your garage or wherever it is. And you'll find a big gray box. Open it up. You see a bunch of little switches in there. You see one big ass switch. It says on and off. Throw that some bitch to off and live that way then, if you really believe that. Because here's the reality with oil and natural gas and coal. I don't like it. It is dirty. We can do it cleaner, but it isn't going away in your lifetime. If we dedicated humanity full on, Priority number one, develop 100% sustainable energy for all the world's needs. Right now, this second, which ain't going to happen, but if we did, if every government got on board, every individual got on board, the current usage and growth of the human population, we could not get 50 to 60% of it done in 30 to 40 years. So we're going to have oil, we're going to have coal, and we're going to have natural gas, and it's going to take longer than that because industry and government don't want to change it. They just want to make money off of it. All this talk of cap and trade and carbon taxation, it's about making money off it. It ain't about getting rid of it at all. Does this mean we should not pursue sustainable energy? Absolutely not. Does this not mean we shouldn't be looking to innovate, improve, and make it better? Absolutely not. Does this not mean that we should try to break the projections of how fast it can be done? Absolutely not, because we may discover ways to do it better. And that's the reality. If it's going to get done at even 50% of the world's energy use, we actually have to develop new technologies, not just improve what we have. And that's the math. And whenever you watch an honest scientific documentary about developing sustainable energy, when they do the math, they always concur with that. Even the most dyed in the wool, we need to do this Documentaries that are based on real science. Always when the math comes out, it's like, yeah, well... (laughs) This ain't happening this way. Well, we just need to reduce our use. Okay, well, you live in Texas without an air conditioner, then. I'm not going to. Well, we just need to build new houses. Okay, what do we do with the 130 million owner-occupied structures in America today? How much energy would it take to replace them all? Well, we can retrofit them. No, you can't. Some you can, but many you can't. Right? So we can start building a more sustainable future today, but we have what we have. So... That means that this caller's view of it ain't going away anytime soon is spot on. So as a permaculturist, would I want to work with the oil and gas and mineral exploration industry and, and help them do this? Um, I don't, but I sure hope somebody else does. I don't want to work for anybody. I don't want to take clients. I don't want to do that type of work. I do what I do here, and I do what I do to help build our systems our way because that's what I like but a person that wants to be a consultant, if Shell Oil wants you to come consult with them and you're a permaculturist and you don't do it because they're dirty, you're a dumbass. You're a dumbass in so many ways. Let me put it to you this way. I think the most brilliant, best permaculturist on planet Earth today, the man that is responsible for my passion for permaculture, the man that switched me on, turned me on to this, the guy that is my go-to, the guy that guides my designs in spirit is Jeff Lawton. I love Jeff like a brother. Jeff and I don't talk an incredible amount to each other, but we have a very good, positive back-and-forth relationship with exchange of information, such that when I met him finally face-to-face in California, he said to his daughter, there's Uncle Jack. So we have a very tight bond. And... When I had him on the air and I asked him about companies like Monsanto, his response was, wouldn't it be great if we had their budget to do positive things? Hello? So Shell Oil Company, we want to be more sustainable. We want to clean up our image. We want to be more green. Bring it on, boys. Let's see what we can do. But do you see what they're doing in Nigeria? And they just have gas vents burning and all. And okay, circle of influence. Circle of cons- Do I have a problem with that? Yes. And you know what? It's up to the Nigerian government to fix that. Right? The Nigerian people. I don't live in Nigeria. I don't influence what happens in Nigeria. But if I'm a consultant because I want that for a business and I got Shell Oil or BP or, you know, uh, Chesapeake Natural Gas and Strilling coming to me and saying, hey, we want to do a better job. Pfft. Let's talk. Let's see what we can get done. I, I think that that's an amazing idea. So we're going to suck the oil and gas out of the ground. Okay, so what are the waste products? What are we putting back in the hole when it comes out? How are we affecting the groundwater? If we're looking at all these things, and they, and, and, and the, the reality is this stuff's now legislated to the point where a lot of things that were being done very filthy 20 years ago are now only be done partially filthy. We've gone from very to partially. So the permaculturist may not have a lot of the high-tech solutions that the oil and gas explorers are working with, but the low-tech solutions. So what if we came into this place where we're drilling and started to put biodiversity right around oil wells? Can you do that? Oh, we're doing it in West Virginia. There's oil wells on the farm that we're working on in West Virginia. Now, are we trying to help them do oil permaculture? way? No. I mean, the lease has been there for almost 100 years now. So they own the the, the, our partners on the farm. The oil wells aren't going away. Can't throw them off. Through there we accept them, but that doesn't mean we can't build beauty around them. And that does. And that you know we look and we say, is there anything leaking here or falling off here? Well, when that oil jack goes to a refinery, I don't get to influence that, but I, I can do something about the extraction site. I can mediate the effects of what's going on. And someone else can worry about the refinement and try to make that process better. But when it burns, there's emissions. Absolutely. I might not be worried about CO2, but I'm worried about like the other 18 highly toxic freaking chemicals that come out of your tailpipe that no one talks about anymore. I know we need to burn less. But we're going to burn a lot of it anyway. So can we do that? Yeah. Do I know exactly how to fix it? No. No, I've never even really considered what could be done. But I do know when I look around at the way oil and gas is extracted, and the big open spaces often that exist around drills and, and what have you, and the, the noise pollution, there's noise too, is an issue, right? You have these machines running, and a lot of the gas is being pumped now right in the middle of neighborhoods. Um, there's ways that that could be mitigated instead of just putting up a giant. What they do now, they put up a giant metal wall that's insulated. And it's this big, ugly thing. And, and that keeps the, and that does work. It keeps the noise down and the dust down. And, but could there be other things done? Could, could green belts go around these extraction sites? And could the, the extraction sites that are going to run from three to 15 years have an exit strategy? Um, yeah. And could we actually, as we as these companies exit the area, they've done their extraction, could they actually be repairing the land as they did? Yeah, and I wish they would have done it in Pennsylvania with strip mining coal. The, the most damage environmentally in Pennsylvania from the coal industry isn't what they're doing today. It was what was done from about 1900 up to about 1965. And then left... Because there was no plan for, okay, after we do this, what do we do to make it right? There was no plan for it. And that was when people could get away with it. So even when the regulations came in and said, you can't do this anymore, all the coal companies said, we didn't do that. They said, yes, you did. You're the coal industry. I'm like, no. That was Castle Coal Company. We're Redding Anthracite. But you guys own Castle. Yeah, but Castle Coal's out of business. We well, It's gone. We didn't do it. Well, what about this other... And I'm giving you real names, by the way. That's Charlie Martin Coal Company. Well, you guys got to clean that up. They were affiliated with you. They're affiliated with us. They're out of business now. Go find Charlie Martin. Oh, he's dead. Can't help you. We're, We're doing everything you said over here now. We're not fixing that. Look at this giant black coal desert that you guys created in the 1930s. There's not anything... This is, you know, 2000... I take my family up there and I look at this black desert as we called it and there's not a there's not a green thing growing for for 15 acres it is black dust. nothing growing just black cold dirt. You look at this and it, it's not us we learn from the mistakes of the past. So if I could push a button and that button, would cause a rapid acceleration and within 10 years, there would be no need to extract a drop of oil or gas or any other minerals from the ground and there would be no more environmental damage from the real pollution these things caused Would I push that button that fast. But that button doesn't exist. So... What we must do now is, yes, develop alternative technologies. Yes, develop the ability to decentralize the production of energy, uh, to make energy more democratic, to make it more libertarian, to develop technologies. And whenever a new – this is where the mistakes are being made. Whenever You can't just retrofit every house in America. It's not going to happen. But we could be saying, look, when we're going to do new construction, let's stop doing what doesn't work well. Let's do a better job of designing homes. Folks, for all the talk of cars, more pollution is created by buildings than cars. I don't create any pollution because I ride my bicycle to work every day, and your house pollutes and the office you work in pollutes. Do I want to blow them up and tear them down? No. But don't deceive yourself to where the actual, it takes more energy to heat and cool a building than it does to make your Chevy Impala do 75 between working back. It just does. And you can look this up if you don't believe me. I'm sorry. It's the case. And if you believe CO2 is a toxin, then the buildings create more CO2 than the cars do. Agriculture creates more pollution than cars. In every way you can measure it. Agriculture is the number one polluter on planet Earth right now. Well, what about oil and gas? Well, how much of the oil and gas is going to that? Plus all the other things that are done. All the nitrate deposition into our oceans. The dead zones that are growing around our river deltas. That's all from agriculture. There's so many ways that our environment is being destabilized. You know, when I say I don't believe in man-made global warming at the macro level, the whole earth, that the air we exhale, the same air we exhale that comes out of your tailpipe is changing the temperature on the planet, don't think I don't believe in climate change on multiple levels. I believe there's a, there's a macro climate change. I think it's mostly influenced by space weather. Again, look up on YouTube why global warming failed. Watch that video. I have a hundred dollar bill, a hundred dollar bill waiting and an apology. A public apology and a $100 bill for anyone that can factually prove wrong one fact claimed on that video. One. So that, I believe. And that's something we can't do jack-diddly crap about. But when we go and take a forest and turn it into a soybean field, if you don't think we alter the climate of that region, you're a retard. I'm sorry. Of course we do. There used to be 100,000 trees here. Now there's a million bean plants here six months out of the year and of the six months out of the year most of the time they're tiny, tiny, tiny. They're only big for a little while and then we spray it with chemicals and then we plow it in a straight line and then we fertilize the hell out of it and half the fertilizer goes in the river. Oh, we have an altered climate. Bullshit. Of course we have. Of course we have. But you didn't do it with this. <sighs> you did it with this massive amount of pollution and destruction and so many of these problems can be rectified with simple low-tech permaculture solutions we could go in for a couple billion dollars a couple billion dollars sounds like a lot of money it is but in the grand scheme of how much money your government wastes with a couple billion dollars we could reduce the dead zone in the gulf of mexico where the where the where the mississippi river dumps out Into the Gulf of Mexico, that huge dead zone there, we could reduce it to almost nothing without actually even changing how people farm. Just with earthworks that are designed to stop the leaching, that aren't even mostly in the fields, there were the leachings occurring in these nutrient traps that could be turned into productive lands and mitigate floods. And that all could be done for a couple billion dollars. Oh, that's a lot of money. What did Hurricane Katrina cost? Yeah? What did Hurricane Sandy cost? It wouldn't have helped Hurricane Sandy, I understand that, but I'm just saying. Like when you look at cost, you gotta do a cost analysis compared to what else are you comparing it to? And they're pissing away billions of dollars a day anyway. Wouldn't it be great? See, this is the thing, right? So, just like permaculture working with an oil company, as a libertarian, you shouldn't want the government to spend any money at all, Jack. Well, I don't. I would be very happy with a government that built roads and sought a basic law enforcement and pretty much didn't do anything else. That, I. Yeah. Woohoo. Yeah. Not going to happen. Not going to happen. Not in my lifetime, not in your lifetime. I'd be totally stoked if I could just get the government to only spend the money it's already stealing from the American people and not go any deeper in debt. Totally stoked. Not going to happen. So if we're going to blow a trillion and a half to $2 trillion a year, which we are, wouldn't it be good if some of it actually did some things that actually fixed some problems instead of just aggravating existing problems so that the people that are stealing the money can steal more? So if I can take... While I don't have the ability to stop something, if I can channel it to something productive, I will. You've got McDonald's, in Australia anyway, looking at permaculture and trying to develop food lines from locally sourced food. Oh, McDonald's is horrible. I, I agree on some levels, yes. But can we get it to go that way? I'm working on a video for you guys right now. The gardens that I talked about yesterday, I'm building out in my yard and yesterday I filmed another piece of it for you, and I have this stuff from Miracle Grow, organic bone meal, in a bag, and I have the bag there so you can see what I'm using. And I point to the bag and I say, if you don't like this company for what they're doing, I point the Miracle Grow logo, because they're Scots and they're affiliated, not owned by, but affiliated with Monsanto. If you don't like this, then don't buy the stuff from this that you don't like. But and I point to the port where it says organic reward them for this, and maybe they'll do more of it. You should never shop at Walmart. Why don't you shop at Walmart and go in there and go, where's your organic produce? And talk to their grocery, grocery manager and go, there's not enough of it here. Where's your organic apples? We don't have any. Well, I'm not going to buy apples here. I'm going to buy this because this is organic. I want organic. I'm not saying organic is the answer to everything. I'm just saying, like, if that, that's what you want, then then deal with companies that are selling that product and only buy the stuff that you feel is right. That's a much stronger message than not showing up. If you don't show up, they don't know you didn't show up. They don't even care. They measure sales in billions. But the guy that works there that starts telling up the channel, hey, look, we got people coming and asking for this. How many did you get? Like four this week. That's not going to turn the whole company on a dime, but they, well four? Most people don't even say anything. There's probably 400. Maybe we can exploit this because they want to make money. Harness that. Harness that. So yeah, if I was a consultant and I had an opportunity to work with an oil company to make what they're doing less damaging, would I do it? Yeah, I certainly would. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. There's nothing I can do It's the
4: price we pay, I guess we follow all the rules
0: There's a better way to do this Let me show you
4: a better
1: way You don't have to be Another face in the crowd
0: Someday we'll realize our children just can't pay. There's nobody up there cares.